Thank you for downloading this Downtown Hope Sermon Podcast. We're a faith-based community in the city of Annapolis, Maryland, orienting our lives around Jesus and exist to see the people of our city, region, and world thrive with the hope found in His gospel. Now, please enjoy the Sermon Podcast. Well, thanks for uh, letting me preach as you can tell that having done the community groups coordinating is something very near and dear to my heart. It gets me excited and uh, has been my life experience. My father was a pastor for a few years when I was a kid and recently he's been a camp director of a Christian camp and conference center. And his mantra has always been 1 Thessalonians 2.8 and that's what we're exploring today. And we'll show it at the end, but 1 Thessalonians 2.8 is about that we're sharing the gospel and sharing our lives together. And that's what we're looking at today. So when we start at sharing our lives and the gospel together, we have to start with the gospel, with Christ at the center. What Joey preached on last week is what we start with. That's what he said was reminding you of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15. And that's what we covered this week. If you've done your estuary uh, booklets this week, it was just some beautiful, beautiful pictures. Our identity is in Christ. And we're our total surrender to him and what he's done for us. John 1.12 tells us that all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. So we are the children of God when we believe in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. We sang it this morning. We are new creations in Christ. Galatians 2.20 says that it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And this is how we proclaim in our song that we just sang, yet not I, but Christ in me, but through Christ in me. And this radical, revolutionary uh, life that the Christian life is intended and meant to be isn't something that we just casually assent to. Like, that sounds nice. I think I agree with that. It, there's a cost, a counting of the cost of, do I really believe this? Is this what my life's about? So if you haven't yet believed in Christ, don't just say, well, let me go ahead and do that so I can hear what the sermon has to say. But I want you to spend some time this week if you haven't yet. Listen to Joey's sermon last week on brokenness and how God repairs our brokenness and restores us despite our sin and our sadness and that he can bring us back to new life. And so that's where it starts. I really am imploring everyone, find your identity in Christ. That is the gospel message. And uh, even this week, I think uh, if you haven't done it, this page 28 and 29 has 25 beautiful statements. And I got to spend some time with, as some of you know, my father's in the hospital uh, and and he's uh, had a traumatic brain injury and his mind's coming back. So on, uh, I think it was Thursday or Friday, one of those two days I was in Texas, we just went through these 25 promises of who he is in Christ, who I am in Christ, who we are in Christ. I am a child of God. I am a new creation. So if you haven't done that, please, that's where we start, with Christ at the center. The rest of the radical, revolutionary Christian life really doesn't make sense unless we understand what Jesus has done for us. But once we believe in Jesus, the question becomes, well, what do I do now, right? Do I just check out the box, believed in Jesus on that day, now I just live my life as I always have? Well, today we're going to look at what we do as individuals and as a community. What we do together, we are his. And let's start with what happened when the disciples 
uh, no longer had Jesus. Jesus isn't right here walking amongst our midst. We don't live around the Sea of Galilee in AD 30, right? So what do we do now? Well, what did the disciples do starting in Acts chapter 1? So in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is still with them, and uh, that he's going to send them the Holy Spirit. And they're like, cool, but... Uh, when is the kingdom getting restored? Because we have been in Israel and we have been dominated. When are you going to establish uh, your new kingdom? Uh, 1-6, they said, Lord, will at this time you restore the kingdom of Israel? They're thinking liberation from Rome. This is going to be epic. We're finally going to have the glory of Israel again. And Jesus says, something's better. Something better is coming. Wait in Jerusalem. And then he ascends into heaven. And the disciples are left looking up into the sky thinking, i I really thought he was about to establish his throne. Um, okay, I guess this isn't exactly how the kingdom's going to be. They go back to Jerusalem and they wait. And they wait and pray. And then in Acts 2, verse 4, I'll start in verse 1 actually. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, they being the disciples. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided as tongues of fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Spirit after Jesus has left and help us to realize what it means to be filled with this and what we do with that uh, in our lives from your word in Acts today. Amen. So we see that they are filled with the Spirit. Peter goes out to the crowd and he's speaking in tongues and he's telling them the gospel message. Just like we heard last week, he starts with the gospel, telling them that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Christ. So let's start in Acts 2, verse 36. And we can put it up on the screen. And Peter's at the end of this speech to everyone in Israel that's hearing it in multiple tongues. He says, Let all the house of Israel know therefore... From, know for certain that God has made him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And in verse 32, it said, this Jesus that God had raised up. And this is where we start. We start with Jesus as Lord, as King, as someone who we listen to and honor and respect and obey, and that he is the Christ. He is the prophesied Messiah, the Savior, saving us from our sins and he isn't doing this in power that is dominating. He is doing this via a crucifixion. And that he's dying and becoming lonely. He is God in the flesh, taking on a body and then dying on a cross, but then being raised back to life. And it says in verse 37, Now when they, they being the, the crowd heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that is the beginning of the church. The disciples have received the Holy Spirit. And now we can all receive the Holy Spirit. So what does this mean for us as we are his? I want to say three things what it means to be filled with the Spirit for us. The first one is that we become part of Christ. We are his body. Centering on Christ is actually more than just following Jesus. 
Jesus told Peter, come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. We sang in our song, I want to follow Christ. Yes, we do follow Christ, but he's not physically here anymore, right? So how, what does that mean to follow Christ? It actually means putting Christ on. Paul says to clothe yourselves in Christ, and it says that Christ dwells in us. Jesus said that the spirit indwelling is better than having Jesus with you. He told his disciples at the Last Supper, He said, it is better that I go away so that the helper may come. So although sometimes, I know I feel this way, I'm reading my Bible, I'm like, man, how cool would it be in Galilee and walk with Jesus, right? And even watching The Chosen sometimes, it feels like you can do that a little bit. But then the Jesus says, having the Spirit is better. It is better to have the Spirit. So we take on Christ. We put him on. And so although we may say the word disciples and we're making disciples, In the New Testament, the word disciple is actually not used again after the book of Acts. Because after that, we are spoken of when we're followers of Christ, even though I said it again, followers of Christ, is that we put on Christ or Christ dwells in us. Back to Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Philippians 1.20, Paul says, "For, For me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. Paul is saying, I am being Christ. In Colossians 1.24, Paul says this confusing statement. He says, in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. And what's confusing about that is what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Didn't Christ fully pay for sins? Yes, he did. But what is lacking since he ascended into heaven to sit at the throne right hand of God, is his physical body, a physical presence. When you need a hug from Jesus, if Christ gives you a hug, he is, Paul is filling up in his flesh what is lacking, which is the physical presence of Jesus anymore. Joey even said it a second ago about how we're going to Annapolis. We are the hands and the feet of Christ. And that's the metaphor that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 12 is that we are his eyes and his hands. And the hand doesn't say to the eye, I have no need of you. We are members in his body. My second charge or my second truth about receiving the Spirit is that we take part in the family of the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, is what Paul says in Colossians. God didn't name himself Father because we have earthly fathers. He made earthly fathers to give us a picture of himself. He made families because that is who he is. From the beginning in Genesis, he said to Adam and Eve, to be fruitful and multiply, have dominion over the earth and subdue it, but fill the earth. He's filling it with his family. And Jesus, when he said, go therefore and make disciples, we're growing the family of God. So we may say followers and may say disciples, but the New Testament writers in all of the epistles, the number one way that they choose to call their fellow believers is actually brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters is the most common way that believers address each other in the New Testament. And David actually gave a wonderful sermon on this in Luke 8 when the the people came to him and said, your mother and brothers are looking for you. And Jesus said, whoever hears my words and does them That is who my brother and sister is. So we become children of God in John 1.12. But it's not that we're joining a family by ourselves. We are not only children. We are joining many brothers and sisters. Romans 8.29 says that we are being conformed to the image of the Son 
that's Jesus, we are being conformed to his image in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So that's what we're doing. We are joining a family and we are adopted into this family with many brothers and sisters. There's a newly published book called Rediscover Church. And it puts it this way. It says, church membership is an assumed reality on nearly every page of the New Testament epistles. But the language is different. Membership in the church is membership in a family. It comes with family obligations. It's membership in a body. It comes with all the dynamics of being connected to every other part. Every biblical metaphor for the church helps us to understand what membership is, and all of them are necessary because there is nothing else in the world like the church. So we're joining this church family together. We are his. These promises we claim aren't just for me, they're for us, which is the truth, which is that we are together. It's not just me and Jesus. It's us in Jesus. The instructions to us in the New Testament, I think, are actually often poorly translated in the English because the word you is often the plural you. How do we say the plural you in English? Y'all. So actually, many times in the Bible when it says, put on the armor of God, he's not saying you put on the breastplate of righteousness. He's saying y'all the body of Christ put on the breastplate of righteousness. And so the command for you many times is for us. It's the y'all command. And then every now and then Paul will use this phrase, you together. And in Texas, we call that all y'all. So and many times he says, you together, you can write next to your Bible, all y'all. And uh, someone's like, well, what does that actually mean? So if I was talking to like a few of you and maybe everyone else wasn't paying attention, I'd say, hey, y'all need to do this. And like the people that are listening to it. But then if I'm talking to those people and everyone else in the room, I say, hey, all y'all need to do this. Even the people not listening also, it applies to them. So that's the difference between y'all and all y'all. So what does y'all do is what we're going to look at next. What does the church do? We together as a family, as a body. And before we get to what we do, I do want to put one, I don't know if I want to call it a disclaimer, but I know that the church has hurt many people in its history and many people even in this room. And the two things I want to say for that is that first, I am very, very sorry. The body of Christ should not be hurting its members. Um, And the second one is thank you for being here because I know it takes an extra effort if you've been hurt to come be with the church. Uh, And I really hope that at Downtown Hope that we can help you heal Uh, help you restore a better view of what it means to be together as a church. And uh, that through what we do together, as we're going to see, that you can get a better picture and a better view and take part in this family uh, and heal from that past hurt. So the things that we're we're going to do, they've been in a lot of our church uh, documents for our community groups and devotions. We've mentioned them from the pulpit. So I'm going to go ahead and throw all of them up on the screen. There's five of them. But we took them when we put them together uh, from Acts 2, which is what we're about to read next. So the five are mission, word, prayer, fellowship, and formation slash obedience, where we're being formed to obey Christ. And so we can start right here. I'm gonna, uh, we've delineated these five things for 
And uh, this is what we do as an individual. I can do these things, but this is also what I do for my family. As a father, I want to lead my family in these five practices. If you're in a community group, this is what we're doing. If you're on a new estuary team with a focused mission, going to take the gospel somewhere, we want you doing all of these things. They are integrated. They're they're together, joined together. I'm not going to have my prayer group over here, my word group over here, my mission group over here. We want each group, each team to be doing these together. And it starts right here in Acts 2, and we see it throughout the New Testament Uh, But it starts right here from the very beginning when the Spirit fills the believers. And in starting in verse 41, it says, this is Peter, uh, or right after Peter has just told them how to join the church. He says, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing those proceeds to all he had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So our first practice that we see here is actually mission, which is next week's sermon, so I'm not going to dive too far into it. But we can see it actually bookends this passage. Verse 41, they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And the end of the passage, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So the word mission is being sent. Sent, uh, mission is the Latin word miseo. And in Greek, that would be apostello, which would be apostles. And so the apostles are sent and we are sent. And that's next week's focus. And I'll let the next sermon handle mission. The next one that we see, and actually I'll put a caveat here when it says those who received his word were baptized. And I encourage everybody, if you see yourself as a believer in Christ and you have not been baptized, you should be baptized. It's not a, I'm not going to say a must if you know anybody with contract language, should versus must. You don't, you, you not must be saved in order to be, excuse me, you're not baptized in order to be saved. But once you are saved, we highly encourage everyone to be baptized. This wedding ring doesn't make me married, but it's a signal that I am married and proclaims to everyone, hey, I'm married to Jenna right there. So this is my uh, signal and my proclamation that I am married, and baptism is our signal and our proclamation that we are saved and believed in Jesus. So the next verse 42 says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This word devoted means adhere to, steadfastly attentive, persevere, not faint, be constant in readiness, wait on constantly. And Tim Keller defines this constant commitment. He says, it is being so committed to something that you're giving yourself away to it. And that is how we abide and remain in Christ. With Christ the center is that we are devoted to these things. And the first thing that they are devoted to is the apostles' teaching. Now, the apostles were teaching right then. And then they wrote some letters to some churches. 
and now we can read these letters in the letters to the Ephesians and the letters to the Thessalonians. And so the Bible that we have is the compilation for us of the apostles' teaching. As the apostles were sharing scriptures with them, they didn't have New Testament scriptures yet. They were using the Old Testament scriptures. So we have this compiled book that we call the Bible, which is the apostles' teaching. And we must be devoted to it, steadfastly attentive. So ask yourself, am I devoted to this in my groups? Are we in our group devoted to it? When I'm on a mission group, am I devoted to the word or am I just giving out uh, soup, which is great, right, as we're feeding others, but am I devoted also to the word? This is the word of God. 2 Corinthians 3, excuse me, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. It says in Hebrews 4.12, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. If we don't understand our hearts, the word does, and it can help us discern that. Colossians 3.16, Paul writes to the church in Colossae, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And that's one of those plural yous. Let the word of Christ dwell in y'all richly. Psalm 119.11, David writes, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And there are many ways for us to engage with God's word. We can hear it by listening to a sermon or by listening to an audio Bible. There's a cool uh, Spotify playlist my brother shared with me called Streetlights Bible where it puts a beat behind it and while it reads to you in the New Living Translation, it's pretty exciting uh, to hear the story or to hear these letters uh, with music behind it. Another one is reading, where we are all literate. For the first 1,600 years of the Christian church, no one except like a monk could read the Bible, but we are all literate. We can read this word for ourselves, the, the breathed out by God words that is living and active. What a blessing that is to be able to read it. We can study it, where we study together or study with a pencil in hand. That's how I kind of define, when do I go from reading to studying? When I grab my pencil. Or if I ask a question, what does this word mean? Let's look it up together. What does, where else is this word used where I use a cross-reference? Oh, look, sanctify. Where else is the word sanctifier? What does sanctify mean? Now we're studying the word. Uh, asking questions, answering questions. Another way is memorizing, and uh, which is so so good for our faith. Chuck Swindoll wrote, I know of no other single practice in the Christian life more rewarding, practically speaking, than memorizing scripture. No other single exercise pays greater spiritual dividends. Your prayer life will be strengthened. Your witnessing will be sharper and much more effective. Your attitudes and outlook will begin to change. Your mind will become alert and observant. Your confidence and assurance will be enhanced and your faith will be solidified. When we memorize scripture, John Piper, one of my favorite three minute clips of him, he gives 10 reasons to memorize scripture. And one of them, he says, because it gives him a way to hit the devil in the face with a power that he cannot refuse. He says, in order I do that to protect myself and my family from his assaults. And he says, what are you hitting him with? We hit the devil in the face when we memorize scripture. And the last one, which I'll put as the thumb, which is meditation. 
where we chew on it, where we reflect on it, where we soak ourselves in it. Psalm 119.15 says, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. Like a cow that sits there with a cud and it's chewing, reflecting, that's what we do when we meditate. And when we make it the thumb because we can meditate on these things that we hear and read and study and memorize, we meditate on these things so that they go into our hearts. The next one that we're going to expand upon is prayer. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. And I'm going with prayers next because it is we commune back to God. The word is how God speaks to us, and prayer is how we speak to God. Sometimes we may also define it where we say prayer and worship, because worship, when we're singing to God, even the rocks cry out, so I will cry out. So our worship and our prayer are how we're speaking to him, and the word is how he speaks to us. I don't think any of us, if we're in a marriage, can imagine our marriage being very healthy if we can't communicate. If I said, oh, yeah, I check in with my wife every Sunday, you know, like that's <laughs> going to work very well for very long. So we need to be in this communication with God. And I don't imagine any spirit-filled life or any spirit-filled church that isn't in this prayerful communication with God. There's also, like there are with the Word, many ways to engage in prayer. Uh, there's where we have private prayer, where Jesus said, go in by yourself and pray. But there's clearly group prayer as well. Jesus was in a perfect state of communing with God as the Son of God, and yet he still went away to pray by himself, and he prayed with his disciples. And uh, there's a whole prayer. John 17 is one long prayer of Jesus with his disciples. And we know he prayed in the crowds. Before the uh, feeding of the 5,000, he prayed and thanked God. So the many ways to do this besides just in the size of it, uh, there's other tools. There's a acronym called ACTS where you can, uh, uh, adoration is A, where we adore and praise God and tell him how wonderful he is. Confession, as we practiced here uh, this morning, where we tell God our sins and our struggles and confess to him. There's T, is thanksgiving, where we thank God for his goodness and his blessings. And the S is supplication, where we ask God to for more of him, more of his spirit and blessings in our lives. And sometimes those are also broken into intercessory prayer, where we intercede on the behalf. We have for my dad, while he's in the hospital, a uh, Facebook group right now with about 600 people in it. And those people are interceding on behalf of my dad. Another type is petition, where we petition by prayer and petition, make our requests known to God. There's other tools where we have prayer cards to help us remember what to pray for. Prayer journals, where we're writing down our prayers to God. Prayer boards uh, in our community group, the Sakirkins host it, and they have a prayer board up on their wall at their house. And one of my favorite ways is praying scripture. I can just read out loud Ephesians 3, 17 and to the end of the chapter, and that is a prayer. I can also read the words as a prayer, right? In the Psalms especially, but any of these verses, I can ask God, uh, to change my heart as I read and thank him that I'm made alive together with him, as Joey said from Ephesians. I can pray that. God, they made alive together with you. Some verses about prayer, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. John 15, 7, Jesus says, If you remain in me 
and my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. We, when we abide in him, that is how we commune, is by receiving his word and praying back to him. The next thing that we see there devoted to, or the middle part, if you will, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And so we define for our fellowship, we combine uh, the word fellowship and the breaking of bread, and we would define fellowship as the love for one another and the serving one another and being with one another and eating with one another. I don't want to skip over the importance of this breaking of bread. I want to emphasize how deeply important the breaking of the bread actually is as part of our fellowship. In this book, A Meal with Jesus by Tim Chester, it's not too long, but it's kind of, I would say it's developing a thea food. So from the beginning, we see that God gave them the plants. And in, in Genesis, he says, I give you every uh, seed-bearing plant for food. And to Noah, he says, I give you everything that moves on the earth for food. God is giving them food so that it results, it shows our dependence on him and our thanksgiving to him. And the Bible ends with food. The tree of life in Revelation 22 says that the tree is bearing fruit 12 times. And so we have the food at the fruit at the, uh, in Revelation 22. And in our final, we all know how the, the story ends with a wedding feast. It's a feast that the Bible ends with. And it's also in the Old Testament how God chose to be remembered. If you were with us over the summer, in Deuteronomy, every time God wanted to be remembered, it was with a feast. He wanted great celebration. He wants us eating together. The Son of Man came is used three times in the Gospels. One time it says, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's what David actually preached on two weeks ago when he was with Zacchaeus. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Mark 10.45 says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And the third one, it says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking this book is about, and that's what we want to be about. Because the first two of Son of Man came to save the lost and to serve. That was why Jesus came. But the third one tells us how he came. He came eating and drinking. And that's what we want to be doing together. That's what this New Testament church is doing. New Testament scholar Scott Barchi says, it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century. Mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Thus, betrayal or unfaithfulness toward anyone with whom one had shared the table was viewed as particularly reprehensible. On the other hand, when persons were estranged, a meal invitation opened the way to reconciliation. Peter wasn't going to go into the house to eat with the Gentile Cornelius until he took three visions from God to tell him, yes, eat with Cornelius. And that's what, as part of this family, is it is this multi-ethnic from all people's family that we eat together with. 
And if you're thinking to yourself, well, Jacob, it says right here, the breaking of, I'm pretty sure it's just talking about the Lord's Supper. They're just doing the Lord's Supper here. They're devoted to the Lord's Supper. And I would say, yes, they are devoted to the Lord's Supper in the context of a meal. For them, the Lord's Supper was a supper. It wasn't just the cracker and a sip of wine. It was a part of the meal. First Corinthians, when it says take, when Paul's describing the Lord's Supper, it doesn't make sense how someone could get drunk on wine if they weren't drinking at a meal. In this church, uh, Father Tertullian in the second century describes how the church gathered this way. He said, our feast that's their gathering. Our feast explains itself by its name. The Greeks call it agape, meaning affection or love. Whatever it costs, our outlay in the name of piety is gain. Since with the good things of the feast, we benefit the needy. The participants, before reclining, taste first of prayer to God. And as much is eaten as satisfies the cravings of hunger... As much is drunk as befits the chaste. After manual ablution and the bringing in of lights, each is asked to stand forth and sing as he can a hymn to God, either one from the Holy Scriptures or one of his own composing. And as the feast commits, so with prayer it is closed. So this church gathering in the first and second centuries were around a meal. And we see it right here in verse 46. It says, And day by day, attending the temple together, which would be similar to what we're doing now. Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. And so that is what we want to be doing together. We eat together at Downtown Hope. And they devoted themselves to the fellowship. They are devoted to one another and to each other, and they're devoted to their togetherness, which leads to our last practice that we call formation and obedience. We have uh, created a name for the group that we sometimes call discipleship bands, but what we mean by that is a group of a few where you're getting to be known really deeply. When we confess our sins to God, that is the one mediator. Jesus Christ is the one mediator between God and man. But John, excuse me, James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another. So when we confess our sins, we're bringing, exposing our deeds of darkness so that we can walk as children of the light. Hiding our sin from other believers has no place in the Christian We must be authentic with each other and vulnerable, bear one another's burdens. And if you're not sharing that with another person, then we're not being formed as Jesus intended us to be be formed into him. Jesus had the crowds when he's preaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, but more than that, spent most of his time with 12 disciples. And then even within that smaller group, he had Peter, James, and John for those special experiences like the transfiguration. And then Paul, when he goes on his missionary journey, doesn't go alone, but nor does he go with a large crowd. He goes with a few, like Barnabas and John Mark. And then he's discipling, as sometimes we use it as a verb, Timothy. And then he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 2, and the things that you have received from me pass on to reliable men, who those guys will pass on to others. So when we're forming in Christ, we're doing it in these, in these specially 
uh, small groups where we're known and can be dig deep so that we can mortify the sin and walk as children of light. And what they're doing here, we see in the passage, is they are not just forming in order to be that with a couple, but they're doing it so they can put into practice, which is why we're saying formation and obedience, because they are obeying what Jesus Jesus said to his, command, uh, to his disciples, a new commandment in John 13, 34 through 35. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He doesn't say people will know that we're the disciples by our ability to exegete scripture or by our ability to pray eloquently or by our service to the poor. People know that we are the disciples by love for one another. And it's a new commandment because we all are familiar with love God and love others, right? The first commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus gives them a new commandment to love, which goes beyond just loving your neighbor as yourself, which I admit is already hard enough, but to love as Jesus Christ has loved us. And what did he do? How did he love us? Is that he was so devoted. He was so committed. He was so steadfast, fixing his eyes to empty himself for us. And that is what Jesus is doing, is he is so committed that he's giving himself for us. And so these things that we're saying, reading, praying, eating together, these things aren't that radical. They're actually pretty normal things. Maybe prayer is a little different because we're praying to God, but if prayer is talking, talking's normal, reading's quite normal, and eating's quite normal. But what makes the church change the entire world, what makes the gospel spread from a small band in Jerusalem across Judea and Samaria and across the Roman Empire and eventually displacing it, taking over, going to every continent, is this radical togetherness, this radical commitment to one another, that we are devoted to giving ourselves away. It's so radical that even in those times, it was considered ridiculous. It, it created ridicule. Lucian of Samosata was a Greek philosopher who wrote about the early church Christians. He says, you see, these misguided creatures start with the general conviction that they are immortal for all time, which explains their contempt for death and their contempt for self-devotion. Their lawgiver, that being Jesus, taught them that they are all brothers. From the moment that they are converted, they deny the gods of Greece and worship this crucified sage, and they live after his laws. Therefore, they despise their own privacy and view their possessions as common property. They're despising their own privacy and view their possessions as common property. Look in these verses. It says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So they're giving themselves away. They're so committed to each other that they're giving away their power. They're giving away their possessions. They're giving away their own glory. Tim Keller says that when we do this and we give ourselves away, that we become unselfish with our goods. 
that we're willing to associate with the lowly. Christ descended from on high to associate with us, taking on human form. And that's what we are called to do is go down to the lowly and descend and not think that we're above anybody. Another way, Tim Taylor says, to give yourself away is to not seek to get back at your opponent. If someone uh, ridicules you, that we don't respond in that way, that we turn the other cheek, that we love our enemies is what Jesus called us to do. That's what Jesus did when he was despised. He didn't speak back. And we don't worry about saving face. When we're insulted, it's like our glory has been insulted, right? And so we don't hold on to that. We don't hold on to our glory. We give our power, we give our possessions away. We give our glory away. And this is what's radical about the Christian life. And this is what we together are doing. We're so committed to one another that we're giving ourselves away to one another. And finally, this results in verse 47. It results in the praise of God. Verse 43 says, awe came upon every soul. And that's our sermon in two weeks, is this life of worship. Everything is his, to the praise and to the glory of God. That's why we're doing this together, is for his glory. And then we also see in verse 47 that the Lord is adding to their number daily. And that's mission, which we're going to cover next week. So if all these things that we do together, our mission, our word, our prayer, our fellowship, and our obedience or our formation. If that feels like too much, oh, how am I going to remember these things? There is a helpful tool that we'll put up on the screen called the wheel. Uh, many of you have probably seen it before, if you've seen any like discipleship curriculum. But what we see in these vertical spokes, if we put prayer, and like we said, we could also call it prayer and worship, that's the prayer and word are how we're communing with God. And then the fellowship and the witnessing, which we would call mission, Right? The serving outside the church and the sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ outside the church. That's what we're on mission to do. That is how we're communing with others, playing. On the outside, we have the obedient Christian life in action. That's our formation, where we're mortifying sin so that we may go and sin no more, that we may walk as children of the light. And then, how do we do all these things? How do we live in a radical way? How do we give ourselves away? It goes back to where we started, which is right in the middle, which is Christ the center. That is how we get to our radical living, is that we must be filled with the Spirit, recognizing our we togetherness. We are the family of God. We are the body of Christ, and that we're reflecting on Christ who gave himself away for us. Christ devoted himself to us. He was so committed to saving us that he gave himself away. He gave away his life. We say that often and we read it earlier in Ephesians. He gave his life away so that we could have life. He gave away his power so that we can receive power from on high. He emptied himself of his glory. He emptied the glory, himself of the glory that he had in heaven. He did that so that we can become glorious and we can be filled. He emptied himself so to be filled and become glorious. He gave away what he possessed so that we can become the possession of God and so that we can receive an internal inheritance. He left his throne of heaven, taking the very nature of a servant 
so that we can become sons and daughters, that we can become a part of this family. We are able to love one another as he has loved us in this new commandment by staying centered and devoted to the gospel. One of my favorite writers, Jerry Bridges, says, preach the gospel to yourself every day. John Piper says, you never outgrow. You never outgrow your need for the gospel. You preach the gospel to yourself every morning and every day. You receive the gospel over and over again. And when you remember that Christ gave himself away for you, you give yourself away for others and you devote yourself to these things. You devote yourself to one another because we are his together as a family. And I need to say, this has been my experience uh, in my family, led by my father, Phil, and in the churches that I've been a part of, in the navigators that I was a group with in college, in my military group at Reality Church in California. I experienced especially the sweet eating together around the, tr- the table in Daybreak in Kailua, Hawaii. And this is also what we're about at Downtown Hope. It's what the church has been about for two millennia. I'm going to close with my dad's favorite verse that I mentioned earlier. And I'd say it's his life mantra. When he was a pastor in Dallas, and here's the coffee cup from Willoughby Church in Plano, Texas. And on it, it says, let's do life together. If you haven't read it, there's a great book called Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. That is what we're doing. We're doing life together. 1 Thessalonians 2.8. It says, we loved you. And actually, a way to translate that is, we were so devoted to you. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share not only the gospel of God, but our own lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. When we are his, we are committed to his gospel with Christ the center, and we are devoted to doing these things with one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you, Father, for this family of believers that we get to partake in. Thank you for our adoption as your children with many brothers and sisters in Christ as our born, Christ as our Lord and as our Savior. I pray that we would be devoted to these practices, that we would be devoted to your word that you speak to us, that we would be devoted to prayer and talking and communing with you, that we would be devoted to mission and spreading and multiplying this good news of Jesus and expanding the family. Pray that we would be devoted to one another in fellowship, in eating together, in communing with one another, and that we would be conformed to the image of your son through formation and obedience. Pray these things in his name. Amen.